We continue in the gospel according to Luke, and we come this morning to chapter 8, verse 22. We will uh, spend the rest of this month in Luke, and then we'll have uh, a couple of special sermons at the beginning of August, and then we'll do a quick uh, topical series, and then we'll pick right back up in Luke, and that'll take us through the end of the year and likely into next year as well. So Luke is the longest of the gospels, but uh, we don't want to hurry through it. So we'll go through it uh, as the Lord leads. This morning, as we exposit the book, we come to uh, chapter 8, verse 22, and we'll go through verse 25. Let's give our attention then to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. One day, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and they were in danger and they went and woke him saying, master, master, we are perishing. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us by inspiration. Lord, for sustaining it for us by your providence through the ages and for even having the ability to have it in front of us, whether we're holding it in our hands or looking at it on our screens. Lord, what a privilege to have your word, even in our language, so we can read it and hear it. So Father, we come to your word now, to the preaching of your word and we pray, O oh God, that you would give us spiritual eyes. Open our eyes, God, that we may behold wondrous things. Teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake. Oh, Spirit of God, make us more like Jesus. Help us in our time of need. Help me, O oh God. Lord, protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you. O oh God, you are our rock and our Redeemer. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Nothing? Surely I got some guys in here. I'm afraid of nothing. Afraid of everything? Perhaps. Maybe something in between nothing and everything. You fit somewhere in the middle there. Uh, with the help of my kids, I spent some time considering a wide variety of fears or phobias this week. I found out that if you're afraid of nothing, then you suffer from nihilophobia. Okay, let me write that down. Uh, if you're afraid of everything, then you suffer from panophobia. And for those like me who suffer from a fear of something in between, here are some of the most interesting ones that we've found. Some of you know these or heard of these. These, these are kind of funny, so it's okay to laugh, okay? Uh, pupophobia, pupophobia. This is the fear of puppets. I thought I'd start there because that's me, especially those like really old, creepy, wooden ventriloquist puppets. 
uh-uh, nope, I'm a pupophobic when it comes to that. Uh, there's papophobia, fear of the Pope. There are people who are afraid of the Pope, papophobia. All right, I'm gonna not say some of these right. Um, this is one of my kids' favorites. Anatodophobia, which is the fear of being watched by a duck. The fear of being watched by a duck. There's arachibutyrophobia. This is the uh, fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. Uh, isoptrophia. Oh, excuse me. Isoptrophobia, the fear of mirrors. The fear of mirrors. There's triscodecophobia. It's the fear of the number 13. Electrophobia, the fear of chickens the fear of chickens. All right, here we go. I've been working on this all morning. I'm going to mess it up. This might be the most ironic phobia of them all. Oh boy. Hippopotamonstrosequepideliophobia, which is no joke. I mean, no joke, okay? It's the fear of long words. <laughs> that person's a genius, right? Yeah, he already did that. Don't ask me to repeat that, by the way. And for those of you listening on the audio, I hope it came out okay. All right, so joking aside, fear's real, right? Fear is real. And for those who experience fear, real fear, fear is no joke. Whether it be a fear of something or a fear that arises from a specific situation, fear is often both consuming, it takes all of us, right? And often it's paralyzing. It stops us in our tracks. Fear can quite literally walk us down a plank of desperation, and make us tumble overboard into a physical and emotional spiraling abyss. If you've experienced fear like that, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Fear can be consuming and paralyzing. In our text this morning, and I'm sure you've caught on already, the disciples of Jesus encounter just this type of fear. And as they come face to face with fear of this kind of magnitude, I'd say great magnitude, their response is both instructive and exemplary for us. So as we study this text together, my hope is that we'll not only be comforted by God, right? Comforted by his grace as we face our own fears, but I'd like for us to be challenged in our response to our fears as well, just as the disciples were. So let's go to the text. So let's start with verse 23. Verse 23 reveals to us that Jesus and the disciples are in the midst of what we can call a perfect storm. So if you're taking notes this morning, this will be our first of three points today, a perfect storm. We, excuse me, we saw last week that Jesus had just finished, right? He's just finished teaching about faith. He's been teaching about true faith that comes from hearing and obeying the word of God. What do I mean? It's the, the kind of faith that comes from being more than just hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. Okay, so he's finished that teaching and it's an important teaching. And now we're going to see it lived out in the accounts that follow. Luke tells us in verse 22 that, and we don't know if this was right afterwards, if there were some days, we just don't know. He just says one day, one day Jesus gets into a boat with his disciples and it's assumed here, it's likely the 12 plus maybe a few other close disciples. It's not a, a huge crowd that's gotten into the boat. Uh, he's gotten into the boat with his disciples and he says to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they sit out. That's what it says. 
Simple enough, right? Just a boat ride across the lake or the Sea of Galilee. It's called both. A boat ride these men had taken many, many times before. So to understand this account, I think it's important for us to know a little bit about the geography of this lake. I didn't hear any groans or see any eye rolls, but we're gonna talk a little bit about geography for just a second because it's important to understand what's happening here. So if you look at the, the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee, the distance across it from west to east is about eight miles. And the distance from north to south is about 13 miles. So it's, it's pretty big, right? This is a big sea, a big lake. And as an extension of the Jordan River, this lake is located in a deep gorge, right? And it is surrounded by high hills on either side, except for uh, some leveling off wide stretches at the north and the south. So you can imagine being on this, you're gonna see hills all around you. And even far off in the distance, you're gonna see a very particular mountain, right? To the north, you're gonna see Mount Hermon, right? Mount Hermon, which it does snow there at the top of Mount Hermon, right? And so a lot of the water that fills the sea comes from this snow that melts on the top of the mountains and comes down as well as it being a tributary for other places. But it's important to think about the mountain because some of you have been to Israel. It's hot in the summer, okay? Some say it can be 100 degrees in the shade. Here on the lake, that's true. So a lot of times in the summer, it can be about 100 degrees. And this lake sits 700 feet below sea level. So it goes down. So what happens when cold winds blow off the tops of these mountains and maybe they come in strong and mix with hot air down below. Any meteorologists in the room, right? A storm happens, a storm happens and it creates quick, sudden, violent storms with lots of fury. Notice in verse 23, Luke just calls this storm a windstorm that came down on the lake. So there's that picture for you. It comes down, right? And it comes onto the lake. In Matthew's account, which is also in chapter eight, he implies that this storm came upon them suddenly. He highlights how quick it came. So experienced uh, seamen today, they call this type of storm a squall, right? And if the storm is bad enough and maybe mixes with another, they'll call it a perfect storm. So you have that picture in mind, I hope. I hope I explained it okay for you. Um, but let us not forget another important part about this whole account. Peter, Andrew, James, and John are what? They're fishermen. They're experienced fishermen. It's been noted that, we know that from the rest. So guess what? They have likely spent most of their lives on this water. They know squalls. They know storms. But yet from the text, from both Matthew and Luke, it's pretty clear that they're seeing something they've never seen before. They've never experienced a storm like this one likely. They probably did everything they knew to do. Don't ask me because I'm not much on a boat. I don't like water. Uh, I will get on a boat, but I sure wouldn't know what I was doing in something like that. These guys would have known. They likely did all of that. But notice how Luke who gives us all kinds of details all the time. He just presents this as very matter of fact, right? In verse 23, look what he says. The boat was filling with water and they were in danger. So already I'm like calling the helicopter, right? Because I'm not swimming. So get me out of here. Well, that wasn't, that wasn't the case then. But notice how desperate this is. I can put an exclamation point on their desperation and their panic. 
by just seeing what they say to Jesus in verse 24. We're dying here. We are perishing. We're as good as dead. I mean, this is quite a picture, isn't it? Salty old sailors, at least four of them are, perhaps others, giving themselves up for lost in this moment is an apt picture. It's one we need to get straight in our mind because you may not have experienced this before on the water, but you experience it in life. Sudden, dangerous storms threaten us as we sail through life, do they not? One moment, things seem still, even serene. Perhaps you're the one taking the nap. And then without warning, you find yourself crying out like the psalmist in Psalm 69. There the psalmist says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to threaten my life. Let not this flood sweep over me or the deep waters swallow me up whole. I've sounded like that before in the face of trouble. Perhaps you have as well. What these disciples are going through here on the Sea of Galilee is something all of us go through. We might lose our job or, or suffer some financial hardship and we get tossed by the waves of worry Perhaps we get diagnosed with a disease or we suffer from a chronic condition and we're flooded with, with fear over what the future holds. We face broken relationships in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our communities, even in our churches. And we feel as if we're sinking. We leave someone we love to death and we drown in our sorrow. Or perhaps it's just the everyday going through life trying to balance all the daily duties and all the daily difficulties that meet us in what seems like every waking minute. And we feel as if we are what? What do we say? I'm swamped. I'm swamped today. The truth is that no matter our station or calling in life, all of us have to pass through tumultuous waters in this life. And even if, those waters appear to be calm at times. We know, you know how they can change quickly, suddenly, and dangerously. One moment, you're just sailing along safe and sound. And the very next moment, you get the phone call, the email, the text message, whatever it may be, and you're facing a perfect storm. So the real question here is, what should we do when that happens? What should we do when troubles like this come? How should we react in these times of difficulty and fear and danger? To whom shall we go for the help that we need? And that brings us to our second point this morning. So if you're taking notes, it's an imperfect faith. We have a perfect storm. Now we come to the imperfect faith. Now, before we talk about the imperfection of the disciples' faith, I do want to make sure we point out something altogether wonderful about their faith, and that is this. They knew where to go, right? They knew where to go. When faced with their perfect storm, they went straight to their master, right? They went straight to Jesus, and they cried out to him. I like how Philip Ryken applies this to us. He says this, he says, whenever we are in danger of drowning, or at least think that we are, we should cry out to Jesus. 
If we're burdened with our sins, we should cry out to him for mercy, asking him to save us through his cross and the empty tomb. If we're struggling to make ends meet, we cry out to Jesus for daily bread, he says. If we're buffeted by physical pain, we cry to Jesus for patience and endurance and relief. If we're torn apart by conflict, we cry to him for the peace of his spirit. If we're overwhelmed with sorrow, we cry to him for the comfort of his presence. He says, in every rough and stormy squall, even to the point of death itself, we call upon Jesus. At least they did that. They called upon Jesus. And so if we go back to the text, I find it very telling that while these disciples are in a rush of fear and panic and despair, where's Jesus? Sleeping. Jesus is sleeping. The storm doesn't bother him one bit. He is sleeping. It's not the fury of the storm that wakes him up. The fury of the storm doesn't wake him up. Rather, it's the cries of his disciples that wake him up. They call upon him. Jesus hears them. And he's both willing and able to help them. Look back down at verse 24. You know, they go to him and they say, Master, Master, we're perishing. And it says, Jesus awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased and there was a calm. We used to act this out with our kids, right? And get them up on the bed. You're tossing the sheets all around. And then so what did Jesus do? And, and I remember my daughter, who I'm gonna call on now, would stand up and go, peace be still. And I'd say, and then what happened? It was calm. It's like, and you be calm and go to bed, right? <laughs> and then mom goes, why'd you rile them up like that? <laughs> peace be still. There's so much focus here on the text that Jesus is commanding. He's not asking. He's commanding, do this. And it happened. It happened. This is a genuine, immediate, and undeniable miracle. One moment, the disciples were as good as dead. And the very next, they were floating serenely on the smooth surface of the sea. The storm had stopped at the simple yet powerful command of Jesus, there's no natural explanation for this. It's only possible because Jesus has the sovereign power that he has as God the Son. But what happens right after this? Without missing a beat, right? Jesus asks the disciples, an important question. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? So this question, if you're wondering, it's indeed a rebuke. It's a gentle rebuke, but it's a rebuke nonetheless. The obvious implication of the question is that the disciples were not really trusting in Jesus. They went to him, but they weren't really trusting. Pastor Ken Hughes, he goes as far as to say, and I agree that, quote, even though the storm did not wake Jesus, the unbelief of his disciples sure did. So make no mistake, and that's why I started there, the disciples are to be commended for turning to Jesus in their darkest hour. So should we. We should turn to Jesus. But many times we don't even do that, do we? In our hardest and darkest times, what do we do? We turn to other things. We call our people, our text our people, don't we? We get on the phone and we call them or go meet with them. We might turn to 
experiences. Let's just do something to get my mind off this. Let's just do something fun. Let's put it all behind us. Maybe let's put it away in a box deep inside and not touch it. And if you ask me about it, I'll lash out at you like an angry crocodile, right? We also sin. A lot of times, rather than turn to Jesus, we turn to sin. If this is what I get with Jesus, then the world will give me this and at least I'll uh, not have to worry about that anymore. And that sin could be any number of things, any other coping mechanism that is not Christ himself. But what we need to see here in this text is that even though they turn to Jesus, there's something quite desperate about the way they did it. You see, the boat wasn't the only thing getting swamped that day. The overwhelming fear of the disciples is also overwhelming. We might even say swamping of their faith. They looked only at the danger of the moment. They were forgetting that they were safe and sound with Jesus there. They asked Jesus for help as a last resort. And when they did, they were frantic and even hysterical, which we pick up on in the way they went to him. Rather than trusting Jesus to take care of them, they immediately assumed the worst. The first words, we are perishing. We are perishing. We're as good as dead. Their assumption, I think if we look at this closely, we'll see this clearly. Their assumption was that Jesus did not know about the situation. He's just sleeping. And what flows from that is they may have even wondered if he cared. Does he even know what's going on? And does he even care? That's an imperfect faith. That's an imperfect faith. Surely, surely we can identify with that knee-jerk reaction, can't we? I mean, it's very easy and natural to panic when faced with a crisis. It's easy to be overwhelmed by storms. When the water's high, the storm is, is coming at rage. It's easy to think that this is it. I'm going down for the last time. This is gonna be the one that brings it to an end. It's also very easy to think that God doesn't know. God, you don't know. what. Why aren't you doing anything? Do you not see? Are you blind, God? Do you not care what I'm going through? You ever prayed like that? God, if you knew what was going on, surely you'd wake up and do something about it. If you prayed like that, you're in good company. Psalmist prayed like that. Habakkuk prayed like that at the beginning of Habakkuk 1. God, what are you doing? Why do you sit there and just do nothing about all this sin going on? You're in good company if you've prayed like that. God, what's going on? God knew what was going on. Jesus knew and get up and do something about it. But I would say that's actually the point. Jesus did know. He knew all about it. In fact, who decided to get in the boat in the first place? It was Jesus. Jesus is the one who said, hey, let's go get in the boat. Jesus is in absolute control of every link in the chain of these events. This doesn't happen by accident. Jesus is leading them on this journey. Now, listen to me. This doesn't mean that God is always the source or the cause of all of our suffering. Be sure of this, that some of our sufferings are indeed caused by the sins of others against us and even our own sin as consequences. God cannot be the author of evil, but God does lead us into paths of hardship 
and suffering for his sake. Ask Joseph, ask Jesus. God leads us there. Our sufferings never catch him by surprise. He knows what they are. He always knows when we're headed for the storms of trouble, whether those troubles come from his hand or at the hands of others. But in every case, God's working. He's always working. He's working to accomplish his goodwill and purpose in our lives. He has a plan. And one of the ways he does that is by taking our imperfect offerings of faith and he uses the circumstances that we face and he brings it all together and he works in us and he begins to perfect that faith over time. He strengthens our faith until one day we can really experience the trueness of our faith when we stand before him in heaven. God is pointing us in that direction. It's always in the direction of his son and glory in heaven. That's where he's always pointing us. So this should remind us of something very key and very important. I'll say it this way. The strength of our faith does not come from the whiteness of our knuckles. Well, that phrase just doesn't come out the way it seems like it should these days, right? Because we're always concerned with color and things like that. But make a fist really hard like you're grabbing onto something. And what happens to your knuckles, right? What happens to them? They start to get white. That's what I mean when I say that. The strength of our faith doesn't come from how much we're able to endure and tough out on our own, or even how hard we are able to cling unto Jesus in the midst of the storm. That's not where the strength of our faith comes from. The strength of our faith comes from its object, the object of our faith. It comes from Jesus, and it comes through Jesus. And that's what makes Jesus the perfect Savior. So that's our third and final point this morning. Had a perfect storm and imperfect faith. Now we come to a perfect savior. You see, Jesus isn't the only one with a question here, is he? Jesus isn't the only one with a question. Verse 25 reveals another question too. Look there again with me. And they were afraid and they marveled and they said to one another, who then is this? that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. It appears that the fear the disciples had over the storm has been replaced with a, a new kind of fear. They're still scared, but it is different. This time they stand in what we would call awestruck wonder. You remember Peter, who was left trembling at the feet of Jesus at that haul of fish that came in to his nets back in chapter 5? Remember, he's like, get away from me. <laughs> get out of here. I can't be in the presence of a holy God, right? All the disciples are now met with that very same kind of response. Now, it becomes clear why they respond this way when we consider some passages from the Old Testament that these men would have been very familiar with. Some of you are probably familiar with these as well. If you just peruse the Psalms, for instance, you'll find, like in Psalm 65, 7, God is the one who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, it says. Psalm 89.9 says of God, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And even in Psalm 106, the same language is used that God rebuked the Red Sea. 
when he saved Israel out of Egypt. You see, in the, the whole of revelation of who God is, only God has the power and authority to rule over the chaos of the sea. Only God can do that. Clearest example, though, is Psalm 107. So grab your Bibles, grab your copy of God's Word, turn with me over to Psalm 107. This story in your mind, Jesus calming the sea. Read Psalm 107. We'll begin in verse 23. I love that sound of pages turning. Don't worry, I hear you scrolling across your screens. Love you doing that too. It's a lovely sound too. Beginning in verse 23, Psalm 107. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. I'm not stretching it to see the correlation. Scared, full of fear, even to the point of death, call out to God and God stills the storm. The disciples realize at this moment that they're standing before the very sovereign God, the one who created all things, the very master and commander of all his creation. The disciples are in awestruck wonder of the holiness of Jesus and they're worshiping him. You can worship in fear. Not all fear is bad. You can worship in fear. He is indeed their perfect savior. Holy, holy, holy. God in the flesh stills the storm. It wasn't lost on them what happened. He's their perfect savior. And guess what? He's our perfect savior too. He's not only with us in the storms of our lives, but he will, he will see us safely through them all. Whether that be in this life or in the next, Jesus will see us safely through it. We've sung of that already this morning. So the question for us is whether or not we're gonna trust him in the storm. Make no mistake, all of us, myself included, bring to him an imperfect faith. I believe help my unbelief is the call of all of us, right? The question is, will we trust him? When we're faced with those overwhelming fears, will we trust him? I think we have two choices, right? We have two choices Like, yes, I will. No, I won't. It'd be that simple, but let me put it for you in another way. You can either be your own captain or you can trust the true captain. You can be your own master or you can trust the true master. We get a picture of what it's like to be our own captain in William Ernest Henley's famous poem, Invictus. 
It's short, so I'll read it for you. It goes like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I think whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and terror looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. Last verse. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's sad. On the other hand, you get a picture of what it's like to trust the true captain in the lines of another poem turned hymn by Charles Wesley, Jesus, lover of my soul. Perhaps you know that one. He, Charles uh, wrote this. He had joined his brother John on a mission to the colony of Georgia in 1736, and it didn't go well. It was a mission filled with all kinds of disappointments, and they were on the boat on the way back, and they found themselves facing a huge and frightening storm, and they were on their way back to England, and when it appeared that everything would be lost, as people started to fear that this was the end, Charles actually didn't pray for deliverance. Uh, He prayed that God would give him faith. The faith needed to trust him no matter what and give him the faith to start encouraging the other passengers on board. Well, if you know the story, you know that the seas finally did grow calm. The ship was saved. And guess what? Many people on the ship were saved as well as they responded to the gospel by the Spirit's grace. And they believed in Jesus. Afterwards, Charles wrote these words from that hymn. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high. Hide me, O my Savior, hide, till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven guide, O receive my soul at last. You see, those who follow the path of Invictus to be the captain of their own selves will surely die lost in their sins and they'll spend eternity in the torments of hell. But for those who turn to the perfect savior, Jesus Christ, and trust him to see them through, they will most certainly be met with the joy and peace that he alone can offer. And though they'll still have to go through the storms, you'll still have to go through storms. Guess what? Jesus will be with you every step of the way, even at the very end when he greets you in glory and says, well done. So which path are you gonna choose? Which path will you choose? To whom will you turn? Will you be your own captain? Or will you turn to the true captain, Jesus Christ? My prayer is you'd turn to him even now. Perhaps it's your first time, maybe it's your millionth time or your millionth millionth time or whatever power of number you need, turn to him, rest in his salvation. Amen and amen. Would you grab your bulletins?